Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning, you, with Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we've got a great day lined up for you today. You're going to love it. We've got everything. But remember, you can always text us at 2057 and email us, inbox at realitycheck.radio, because we love them, and I'm going to have a mailbag. Um, we have got the incomparable Wally Richards gardening. Man, listeners enjoy him. And we talk gardening. We cover off dealing with pests. We cover off uh, what to do in your tunnel house or glass house now to prepare it for the new season. Uh, We cover off so much, but also the planting of potatoes, which you're going to enjoy. And then we have another favourite guest of ours, Prof Elizabeth Rata. And we discuss what is happening to our universities and within our universities. Mm. We see it uh, in the newspapers, but what is actually going on? That's all coming up. Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way, because respect needs to be given and needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You can send us a text at 2057 or an email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. And I think the most popular man on Reality Check Radio is with me today. It's Wally Richards, our gardening guru. Good morning, Wally. 
Good morning, Rodney. But I, I heard that you were more popular than me. No, no, oh, yes, no. Yeah. no, 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 no. I had a meeting with a whole lot of RCR listeners, and all I got was people like me because I like because I knew you. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone people were coming up and they say, Oh, I do love Wally. I love Wally. I love his tips. I love his show. And you know what they particularly loved, Wally? No. Again, feedback is that your advice is very practical and very inexpensive mm. because you, oftentimes the advice you're getting is from businesses that are selling you stuff and to grow carrots you need to spend a small fortune but to grow carrots with wally you just need a bit of chicken poop or horse manure a bit of cardboard and uh, a bit of lawn to turn into a garden and hey presto your carrots are away so they do appreciate that wally yes well gardening should not be expensive ideally it, it should be relatively cheap because if you end up paying twenty dollars to grow a cabbage, you might as well go and pay ten dollars at the supermarket <laughs> and buy a cabbage. Um, so, yeah, it depends. The problems that arise sometimes, like uh, caterpillars um, up north, they've got a plague of these creatures called um, army worms, which are not oh. worms at all. They're actually a caterpillar, and I was talking to a guy um, just the other day, and he said, though, even in my lawn eating the grass, he was saying that locally to where he was, a commercial grower of um, vegetables has had his whole paddocks wiped out. Wow. Another another grower, uh, hydroponically, which means it would be under um Glass house or something like that, hydroponics. Um, once again, he's lost all his crops completely. And, and these ferocious little creatures, um, they live in the soil. So I suppose, uh, well, they don't so much live in the soil. They pupate in the soil, right? So they'll come along and they come from a moth. They don't come from a butterfly, right? So they come along and she lays her eggs on your cabbages or whatever. And now here's an important thing too. When people go out to this um, garden centre or mitre tea and whatever and buy their seedlings, they should, before they plant them, check them for eggs because quite often they will bring the problem in on their plants, put them in the ground, Little plants get established, the eggs hatch out, gobble, 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 no more plant. My goodness. Oh, yeah. So and if if I bought a plant for my to 10, where would I look for the eggs? Everywhere. Um, yeah, little yellow um eggs, quite small, but very visible to the human eye. And all you've got to do is rub them off. Um oh my simple as that. You don't need to spray or anything. Um but the foliage should be checked. It's usually under the leaf okay. is where you find them, but sometimes um, on the top of the leaf, and that cleans them up. But these um, army worms, as they're called, uh, after they've finished and reached maturity, they will drop off the plant, bury themselves in the ground, and then pupate, 
then later on, of course, emerges a moth. And they do the damage as a caterpillar in the ground or as the moth? A caterpillar on the plant. That's where they're eating. They don't, they actually, I presume, they live on the uh, plant itself while they're feeding. There's no point going downstairs, yeah. <laughs> having a nap, and then coming back up again. <laughs> and is that, a, are they a new thing, Wally? Um, apparently so. Um, they came, as everything comes from Australia, of course. Um, but I'm amazed this season why there is such a prolific amount of them. Like we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands. We're not talking about, you know, the white butterfly. And if you're a commercial grower getting wiped out, I mean, you're looking at your crop and across it every day, right? Yeah, yeah. Like um, the cost of sprays for the, um, what's the name? becomes horrendous. Um, it's a no-win factor for commercial growers. And, of course, here's the clutch of the whole thing. If you go to the supermarket, maybe not us, but some people, and they see a hole in the cabbage leaf, they go, oh, it's insects, right? They, they, they want to see a perfect cabbage. Yes. Yet I know other people that they look for a cabbage with a hole in it because they think it's safer because something's <laughs> actually eaten it. It's, it's not poison. <laughs> no, it's not so poisonous, my God. Um, well, sorry, carry on. And I was going to say, my partner recently, she said to me uh, with some of my, um, I think it was Pak Choi growing, she said, They've got holes in the leaves. And I said, yeah, but you don't eat the holes. You eat the bits <laughs> on the outside. <laughs> oh, but I must admit how we affected because, as you know, I'm very new to this gardening business, Wally. Mm-hmm. And while I've always – well, I've taken up cooking and learned to cook about 10 years ago and to become a very keen home cook – and not eating out and buying fast food and eating healthy a la Western A price. But I was addicted and loved the supermarket. So I like my eggs in a carton all nice and clean. I like my meat not dripping blood all in a nice little plastic packet with a bit of polystyrene. And I love walking down the green grocery in the supermarket and all this perfect fruit fruit and veggies sitting there like out of a, you know, just so wonderful. And the other day I found myself in an organic market and I looked at the vegetables. And to me, you see, this this is the problem of, I guess, consumerism. To me, they didn't look very appetizing. Because a bit wrinkly, bit shriveled, bit tatty, had some holes in them. And, of course, we've been conditioned now to what we think a cabbage should look like. Mm, yeah, true. Um, they're looking for perfection. Yes. Um, but the problem, of course, if you compare uh, what you grow naturally in your garden to what you buy in the supermarket – and the taste is incredibly different. Incredibly different. Incredibly different. Um, particularly 
if you put the minerals into your garden mm. um, using natural things, animal manures, et cetera, et cetera, maybe a little bit of um, ocean solids, maybe a little bit of um, magic botanic liquid, which are mineral rich, that increases the um, taste of them and the goodness. And, and, and the key for nutritional value is if it tastes good without having to use any condiments, it means it's got a lot of nutritional value. If it doesn't taste good, it's just bland, it means, hello, there's nothing in there of any great goodness. And this is the problem that people have. They'll go down and buy all their stuff from the supermarket and so forth, make up a big meal, and they eat the meal, and when they've finished eating a good-sized meal, they still feel hungry. Yes. And, and the reason being is that the body is saying to them, hey, excuse me, um, where's all the vitamins? Where's all the minerals? You know, I haven't seen any of them yet. Mm. All I've seen is a whole lot of chemical poisons, uh, insecticides mm. <laughs> and stuff, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> which is no particularly <laughs> good to me. And, and so then people tend to go off and, and pig out on some potato chips or something, you know, yeah. to make themselves feel, feel full. But they are full, and this is one of the reasons we have obesity these mm. days is because the nutritional value in the veggies and fruit is not there. So they inadvertently think, oh, I haven't had enough to eat, and they stuff some more in. Well, it's funny, isn't it, because my little girl has an apple in the lunchbox every day, and if it has the merest blemish, she'll go through, you know, the fruit bowl and put that one to one side to get the perfect-looking apple. And, of course, you and I know that apples grown properly are blemished and have little impurities and maybe even a bug or two in them. <laughs> but she's conditioned to have the perfect apple. And I'll tell you a funny one for me. I actually struggle to eat uh, organic eggs and farm-raised eggs because, to me, they're too strong. Um, and uh, I've I've got so used to bland eggs that real eggs taste off or odd to mm. me, and yet I actually know in my heart of hearts that they're more nutrient-dense and that right. the yolk is more yellow, and it's better for me, but I'm so used to an insipid, commercially grown egg that a proper egg um, – is a surprise to my taste, and I'm just not conditioned to it. So it's a funny, it's a it's a funny world. But I know this, Wally, from my lettuces, which just I had, I I I plucked the end of my lettuces. So what's this? The total end of May, and I accidentally started gardening by having some of my mother's seeds and throwing them on the onto some uh, compost. And they grew like crazy. And I've had three months of lettuces virtually every day because I put them in my sandwiches with Marmite. We've had lettuces, lettuces. The neighbors have had lettuces and lettuces. My goodness, they taste wonderful. And Ooh. I am, as you know, I'm a gardening convert. Right. Uh, I've got a couple of questions for you, Wally. Okay. Now, I'm I'm behind on my mailbag, so we'll do mailbag next. We're going to have you on at least every fortnight. Um, I am an enthusiast 
always, and I get carried away, and I do things to the nth degree. So um, I always mess it up by overdoing it. So if I think one thing's good, 10 must be better, if you know what I mean. And I fear that I have got carried away and planted things way too early, um, and I wonder what happens to vegetables if you plant them a month too early, either in your glass or tunnel house or in your garden, does that mean that they stall and then catch up later? Do they die or do they grow and have no fruit? What what happens to vegetables planted too soon in the growing season? Mainly because I'm reading a book that might be for the North Island and here I am in central Otago. Right, okay. It's not planting too early, it's planting too late is the problem. Right? Ah. And, and it's all to do with daylight hours. So at the moment we are just about a month away from the shortest day, right? Yeah. So we're coming down, depending upon where you are, to roughly eight hours of light a day. Yeah. Right. In when we get around six months later, of course, we've got the longest day, and there we have looking towards about 16 hours of light a day, right? Eight yeah. hours of darkness. Okay. So plants need light to grow, right? Because they take uh, the sunlight, convert it to uh, carbohydrates. And that's their um, growth material, and that's what makes them grow. So if we plant late in the season, and late in the season is now, um, our cabbages, whatever, chances are they'll grow a little bit, but not much. And then when the daylight hours start to extend, going into, say, August, um, they will do what we call bolt. They will go to seed. Ah. And because they've had a check in their life, and any plant that gets a check, it stopped growing for some reason, maybe a drought, maybe um, the amount of light they're getting, et cetera, et cetera, maybe um, anything that causes them to stop. The plant says, oh, my God. I'm going to die. All I want to do is reproduce myself and go to seed. And that's why they go to seed, is to save themselves through their prodigy. Got it. And that could be caused by insufficient light. It's funny because you say too late, and I, this is me being a non-gardener, I was thinking too early, which meant, you know, planting now instead of three months later or two months later, but actually you're thinking of too late the season. But it's the light that's critical rather than temperature, or is it both? Mainly light, temperature secondly. Isn't that interesting? So even in your glass house or tunnel house, there's a limit to what you can achieve because a tunnel house and a glass house is about the temperature, but the limiting factor will become the light. Yeah, um, temperature and shelter. 
because they're not buffered by the wind, okay. um, cold winds, etc., etc. They're protected, so they're in a uh, a microclimate environment. But, but if they don't get sufficient light in the day, they will grow, and then as the daylight hours lengthen, rather than producing, say, a nice head of lettuce or some nice broccoli or a nice cabbage head, they'll just run to seed. Yes. So anything that has the form of head yeah. is not so advantage to a plant that doesn't form a head, like drunken woman lettuce, right? Yeah. You can harvest the outside leaves. Now, okay, they may not grow fast, but you can still harvest a reasonable amount of them. Same with silver beet. Um, you uh-huh. don't harvest the whole plant. You just take the outer leaves. Um, they will give you, through the winter time, when there's minimal growth, still some produce, particularly if you planted a lot like you did with your packet of lettuce seeds. Yeah, mm. <laughs> you get heaps. So yeah. um, the they will still grow to a point, um, but you can overcome that if you want to by putting some lights into your glass house. Now, commercial growers do this. They will get a string of lights. They don't have to be grow lights. They can be, and nowadays we've got these modern type lights, which are quite cheap to run, but incandescent and um, fluorescent is the ideal combination. And they put these in their glass house and round about, say, five o'clock at night, this time of the year, or even four o'clock, they will turn them on and run them for maybe about four hours. And then then it would turn off, have some night time, and then in the early hours of the morning, say about, say, four, no, say five or six o'clock in the morning, they'll turn the lights back on, automatically controlled. So you've now extended the light hours of those plants in the glass house up to 12 or 16 hours by using artificial light. How amazing is that? Because I always thought that a glass house was simply about warmth, but it's not enough. Well, see, here's another aspect. You germinate some seeds, right, and you do it in the kitchen on the windowsill. When those seeds sprout and they grow up a little bit, they stretch to the window because they're looking for light, right? Now, in a glass house, on the shelf, you germinate your seeds and they grow straight up, sturdy, strong, because they don't have to stretch because the light is coming from above, not sideways. Oh, how fascinating and how wonderful. Um, I may have been naughty because I planted broad beans and I planted some outside. I got my little girl to plant them because she decided she couldn't take school. And I said, well, we're going to have to work. And we worked in the rain. And I had some broad beans, and she planted some in the ground and some in our tunnel house. How do you think they will go? Um, Interesting. The broad beans need to be pollinated, 
It's using bumblebees that do the pollination for you, and they come in underneath the flower to get the nectar, and that sets the fruit. Hence, people growing broad beans in the early part of the season when they're flowering, before the bumblebees get out in action, they get no uh, beans. They just get flowers that wither and fade, and then later on the uh, bumblebees come along and they start pollinating and then they get um, beans forming. So it's it's a bit of a problem. Um, In a glass house, tunnel house, chances are, unless you've got a lot of bumblebees around and they can find their way in, um, you'll have some nice-looking plants and some nice-looking white flowers with yeah, little funny. black dots and so forth, and that's fine. That's that's very good. Uh, you may be, not get many beans. Could I pretend to be a bumblebee, Wally? Um, yeah, it's it's a little bit complicated. It's, it's, it's kind of with bean flowers, it's the bottom part of the flower that needs to be flipped or tapped so yeah. that it actually moves the pollen to have it um, fruiting. Some beans are self-fertile. You don't have to do anything. They just set themselves. Um, but, yeah, broad beans are a bit of a problem. Well, um, we might – I'll have to talk to Grace about this because she her, she her, her expectations could be dashed. But I did tell her that it's a Fort Prospect gardening like life and you've got to prepare for disappointments and adversity and overcome it but we might have some fun pretending to be bumblebees yeah a little brush yeah yeah Yeah. like look at the flower and and open it up and and with a little um brush that you use children use for doing their painting stuff sort of thing a nice soft one poke that in there give it a swirl around, and that may be sufficient to see. So it. it pollinates its own flower, or do you got to take it to another plant? No, you don't take it. It's a self-pollinating. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, we will attempt that if we get the growth. Now, Wally, more sensible people, because I get your wonderful email, and I recommend to listeners, if you love Wally like we all love Wally, you got to get on his email list. Wally had advice for more sensible gardeners who do things at the right time according to the season, and he had advice for those with a glass house or a tunnel house because we're in winter, and it's what you would be doing as we head into the shortest day. Turns out, don't grow planting. (laughs) What should we be doing, Wally? Okay, at the moment, um, yeah. It depends on where you are in New Zealand, too, to a certain extent. Um, some people will have done green crops in their veggie gardens, right, which can be done if you're growing in a tunnel house and you're growing in the soil, not in containers. Um, a green crop is things like lupin, mustard, etc., which you plant. Uh, well, you don't really plant. You just scatter the seeds and cover them a little bit. They germinate and grow. And then later on, the idea of a green crop is two things. A, it prevents a lot of weeds because you've already got something growing there, so weeds are harder to establish. And secondly, 
they take up the nutrients that are in the soil that you used in your last growing season and they store them in themselves and then later on you cut them down and in the old days we used to dig them in, right? So uh, we were burying the goodness. These days I say, well, that's, you know, a lot of work. Um, it's better to cut them down, let them lay on the ground, and then put some nice purchased compost over the top of them, mm. and and it's ready to plant. No no digging, no mucking around, disturbing the soil. Um, soil disturbance is something that you try to avoid. Oh, really? And, yeah, um, because in the soil you've got soil life. You've got worms, you've got um, microcilium fungi, and you've got um, a whole lot of beneficial uh, microbes, right? Now, when you go digging around, you're, you're disrupting. It's like um, putting a spade into a great, enormous spade into a city <laughs> or drop an atomic bomb. Yeah. You know, you're destroying a whole lot of life. My goodness. Right. So... If you leave, I, 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 I thought, and this is my ignorance again. I thought that digging it over was the greatest thing you could do for soil, because it would sort of aerate it and make it lighter. And I can remember uh, my uncle had a huge rope tree hoe, which scared the living bejesus out of me as a little boy. And he'd be up and down his garden, smashing heck out of it with this rope tree hoe. And you're suggesting that you're breaking up the ecology, I guess, of the soil. Mm. And releasing CO2, which everybody goes, oh, you're not allowed to let out CO2 <laughs> go. Uh, it's going to destroy the planet, my God. So you, you would conceivably have a vegetable garden that you never dig. Yeah. Wow, I didn't think that was possible. In the old days, um, people dug their gardens on the pretext that the subsoil down below had a lot of mineral value to their garden and they would turn um, the topsoil down into the uh, below and bring the lower soil up. Now, there's a certain amount of logical reason in that, um, and yes, it helps. Um, but in an established garden that's been doing well, what's the point? Uh, go to the gym, pay some money, do your exercise that way. <laughs> <laughs> leave leave the soil alone. And, and this to the point, very point, like weeding. Ideally, you should never pull a weed out, right, because you're disrupting the soil. Instead, I use a sharp carving knife and I cut a weed off just below the surface of the soil, right, taking the weed away, leaving the roots intact in the soil to rot and feed the soil and the soil life, right? And then the plant that I've taken off the weed, I lay that on the ground, and within a week or two, the soils come, microbes and so forth, have come up, grabbed it, and it's disappeared. It's like if you mow your lawn and you don't use a catcher, okay, she looks a bit shabby for a few days, 
But within a week or so, what happened? It's all gone. Where's it gone? It's gone back down. You are so wonderful, Wally, because you're just um, making so much sense and you're changing my whole conception of how I should be doing things because, like, what you say seems so logical and yet traditionally it's not the way it's been done. True. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why people changed uh, and started doing things differently. To what, like, if you go back in history, we were hunters and food gatherers, mm. um, and I'm talking about, you know, thousands of years ago, um, a primitive situation. We would just move to a place, throw our stuff, um, and then move on. Or if we're in an area where it was going to be uh, a bad winter, we'd move to the summer hunting grounds and then uh, later on, um, move back, um, whatever. And, of course, we never looked after the soil. But when we became civilised to the extent of not moving around, then we had to start looking after. And the best people in the planet for doing that was the Chinese, my God. On a small piece of land, they could feed a, a lot of people and they would overplant and I remember reading that when they didn't own the land, they, they actually um, hired it from the landowner. And the condition was with their land that when they finished and gave it back to the owner, it had to be as good as, if not better than it was before they took it. Mm. Right? And they would do such things as the night cart, of course, mm-hmm was utilised. Um, they had fermenters where they'd ferment that along with the pig manure and uh, that would go into the ground. A lot of their uh, village houses had earth floors and a person would actually pay them to come and scrape off the top few inches of soil, which is very valuable because it's had all the rubbish and yes. bits and dust and God knows what food scraps have fallen into it, you know, into the floor, and then give them a fresh lot of uh, soil to replace. And they take that away because it's rich in nutrients to grow. They used everything. Nothing was wasted. My goodness. Well, I have to say, since I've started gardening and composting, I can't believe how much less rubbish I'm producing. Because I, I wouldn't have thought I produced much compostable material in a day, but you do. It's Ooh. incredible. And um, I can imagine um, in the old days, uh, you know, what we throw away um, today is almost criminal when I look at it, when I think back to it, because you have all this beautiful green waste that I'm now carefully um, chopping up and putting in into my garden to grow. Right. See, Harking back to years ago, and some people still do this, and I'm thinking particularly in a farming situation where you didn't have anybody coming around and pick up the rubbish, right? Mm. So in regards to the green waste from the kitchen, scraps and so forth, they would dig a trench Mm. in their garden, a spade or two deep, right, and leave it open, and then as they had um, scraps and stuff, 
they would stick it into one end of the trench until it came about level with the ground, and then they put some soil over it, and then they put stuff in front of that and keep on going until the whole trench was filled up. That was right? my dad. That's what my yep. dad did. Yeah. And then they'd dig a trench alongside, but the plant trench that they've just filled, they'd plant their cabbages in. Yes. Top of it. And of course, it was going into this nutrient rich yeah. soil. Yeah. And they'd just grow like paleo. Like crazy. And and now we throw it away. And if we do have a garden, we busy run off to Mitre 10 to buy some fertilizer. Now, let me take you back to people with their tunnel house and glass house. Some that are growing on the ground might have a green crop growing. Others won't. And you had a great tip for what you could do with your tunnel house or glass house at this time of year. Right. Okay. Now, if it's been used during the season, there's been an insect problem, more than likely, white fly, maybe aphids, maybe other insects problem in the glasshouse. So come the end of the season, your tomato plants have come to the end of their days. They're not going to do anything much more, um, mainly because of the cold and also the shorter daylight hours. So then the house has got a lot of insect pests either in eggs or harbouring over in the cracks and crevices, waiting for spring so they can reinfest your new crop. The ideal thing, which all the nurserymen do, is fumigate the house. Now, if you've got tomato plants in there at the end of their days, don't pick them up and will pull them out and take them outside and put them in the compost heap. Not a good idea because they're covered in insects. All you're going to do is transfer those insects from inside the house to the outside gardens, my God, where they will establish it themselves and then be a problem in the spring. Instead, you leave them in the glass house. Then you get some yellow powder sulfur, sometimes called subline sulfur or flowers of sulfur. We, we sell, in fact, we're about the only people that actually sell it nowadays. And the garden centres, some garden centres buy it from us and sell it. So um, it's a particular thing, and its full name is yellow powder sulphur. No, it's actually comes under the names of subline sulphur. So, sorry, so what is flower, that? Flowers of sulphur. Flowers Flower, as in, as Flowers in, of sulphur is, is, is it, its common name. Is it wheat flour, flour, or flour you grow in your garden, flour? Oh no, flowers as you grow in the garden. So flour, flour, of sulphur. It's what comes out of volcanoes. Oh wow, it's yellow. It's a yellow powder, right? Yeah. Okay. It's got it's got many, many, many uses. Um, so one of the uses is you burn that in your glass house. Now, to do so, you need to put it onto a half shovel, about two or three tablespoons of sulphur, or onto a spade, because it should be on a metal surface. You've got to um, make sure you don't cause a fire, and on a metal surface it'll be safe, right? Because once sulphur gets burning, it's very, very hard to put out, right? And, of course, you don't want a fire brigade coming down and <laughs> putting out your glass house. Yes. So you're on a metal spade. It's hard to light. 
So you've got your couple of tablespoons there. If you've got one of those uh, flamethrower um, things for weeding, it's got a real strong flame, uh, that will start it, no trouble at all. You won't start it with a big lighter easily. So if you have a problem starting it, you can get a bit of methylated spirits and just dampen part of it or maybe use one of those fire starters yep. and, and have that there associated with the sulphur. Like that, once the sulphur starts burning, it will burn. It creates a very choking, dense fume of sulphur fumes, right? And it's those fumes that uh, will obliviate and kill the pests in the glass house, right? Your old tomato plants are still there, so all the insects that are on them will get killed. Some tomato plants will actually survive the fumes. Some will succumb to it, um, as I found out from past experience. Um, you've closed up all the vents. After you lit the sulphur, you get out because if you stay there, you will start to find it very difficult to breathe and then you won't breathe at all. You'll end up like that white fly. Not like the white fly, <laughs> dead as a doorknob. Okay, so get out, close the door, and you leave the place closed up for, say, a day, you know, 24 hours, and then you open her up. Now, at the time which you open it up, there should probably be no plants of any consequence in there. The thing is to prevent insects getting into your glass house, and that can be done in several ways. In the old days, we used to plant marigolds in our glass house. The marigolds would create a smell and disguise the smell of the tomato plants, right? And white fly flying around wouldn't be able to smell the tomato plants because of the smell of the um, marigolds, and they'd fly on by and go somewhere else. These days, we use what my neem tree granules, Wally's neem tree granules. We put that on the soil of the glass house. That creates a smell without having to grow a lot of marigolds. And once again, it disguises the smell of the tomato plants. Also, we have what's called sticky yellow fly traps, right? Now, these are special yellow colour, which attracts insects such as white fly, adults on the wing, and other insect pests attracted to the yellow colour. They're sticky, so when they land on them, um, they can't get off. They're stuck, right? And they are hung by the vents, um, by the door, and above the tomato plants you're growing. So in a season, these little no, what, about a foot long, just about. Um, they were just massively covered by thousands and thousands of insects. Right? Mm. And every one of those insects didn't get a chance to lay any more eggs on mm. your plants. So it reduces down the problems of having to spray or whatever by having the traps. So you've got lines of defence. You've got the smell from neem tree granules. Um, overriding the smell of the plants you've got in there. That helps. Then you've got the traps of the yellow sticky pads. And as a result of that, you have a relatively free season without having to do much in the way of spraying to control pests. 
So just to recap, in the winter season, when you have no plants of any consequence in your glasshouse, tunnel house, you fumigate it with the yellow, yellow, yellow powder sulfur, flowers of sulfur, or sublime sulfur. Did I get all that right? Yep. Yeah. Um, and by the way, would that you wouldn't do that if your plants are growing and you had a pest problem because it would whack your plants as well. Yeah, that is a danger because the fumes will uh, inadvertently kill some plants. Okay. My, so you... my own experience was one time I did it when I had several different varieties of tomatoes growing in a glasshouse. I bombed it with the sulphur and some died, some survived. Okay. So it depended on the variety. What, what I would do after, if the plants were there, is after the fumes had gone and it was safe to go back in, I'd go in there with a hose and give the, uh, a sprinkling of water over the foliage yes. to wipe the sulphur off. Okay. Sulphur-sensitive plants. Now, some plants are sulphur-sensitive. Apricots, for instance, sulphur-sensitive. If you spray an apricot tree with sulphur, it will die. Simple. Okay. Um, okay. Cucumbers are reasonably sulfur-sensitive too. So we have this um, fumigant, and then as we start planting, we want to keep the pests out, and if they do get in, we want to kill them and stop them laying eggs and having a pest problem. Now, you particularly mentioned tomatoes. Is that because tomatoes smell and are very attractive to uh, insects? Are they a particular problem or are other plants also in your glasshouse a problem? Well, you know in the beginning of the season when you plant up or buy a tomato plant and you so forth, it, you can really smell it, don't okay. you? Okay. Um, they have a strong smell. They are a particular problem. And to get that smell, we overwhelm it with the neem granules, neem tree granules or marigolds, and that disguises the smell. So the little white fly sailing past thinks, oh, I'll go to Roddy's tunnel house and lay some eggs on his tomatoes. But I've tricked that little white fly because I've got the granules down there and it can't smell the tomato, and it sails past and goes to Calvin's next door mm. and lays its eggs there. And so that's – I got that. And tomatoes are a particular problem because of the smell, but presumably the white fly doesn't just attack tomatoes. It, it gets into everything. Yeah, it, your cucumbers growing in there. They'll okay. get infested under the leaves with lots of nymphs and white flies. Okay. Um, Capsicum and, and chilies, not so bad. Okay, so we keep the smell down, and then our next defence is sticky yellow fly, fly, trap. fly traps. Well, and we put that everywhere, and the ones that do get in get stuck on it and don't get an opportunity to, to lay their eggs. And that means that we can certainly reduce our risk of an attack and therefore reduce our need to be going in there willy-nilly spraying our plants. Right. Okay. And, and with the white fly sticky traps, you can buy them like we sell them, packs yeah. of five, but you can make your own. 
And as in the old days with Dulux, it used to be Dulux Canary Yellow was the mm. ideal colour of yellow for it. But they don't have Dulux Canary Yellow anymore. So you have to find something of a comparable colour because the the yellow colour is most important that it's correct. Otherwise, it's not going to work particularly well. Um, so piece of three-ply, um, say I'm in feet and inches, say about five inches wide and yeah. about eight inches long, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. with a hole in so you can hang it on a yeah. piece of string, um, painted the yellow all over, and then after the paint's dry, you can do one or two things. You can smear a cooking oil over the yellow um, painted trap, or you could put a plastic bag over it and smear the oil on the plastic bag. The advantage of that, of course, is that you take the bag off and put another bag on and, and, and oil that, where wow. otherwise you would take the trap down, wash it, and re-oil it and put it back up. Wow, that's amazing. That is that is truly amazing. Um, what a great tip that is, Wally. And so would you expect in the normal course of events to get through a year without necessarily having to spray? Basically, yes. It, it depends on circumstances. Um, the worst problem, of course, is outside of the glasshouse, maybe over the fence and your neighbours, there's a whole lot of whitefly on whatever plants, right? And, of course, as they're searching around, inadvertently they will find their way in or they might get sucked into your glasshouse because the heat goes mm. up. They get sucked in through the doorway or whatever and, oh, oh, hello, there's a whole lot of tomatoes in here. Oh, good. <laughs> Tomato <Yeah>. heaven. <laughs> yeah. And, and so they lay their eggs. But be that as it may, each year you can start off at year zero because you fumigate it mm. and uh, have another crack. It's not like you're carrying the pests from one season to the next. Right, and then you go and buy some plants or get some plants from somewhere, you take them into your glasshouse, and lo and behold, there's a whole lot of eggs on those plants you didn't know. And when yeah. it comes to whitefly eggs, it's very hard to see them and rub them out. So once again, we bring in our problems more often than not. Um, insects in the house, uh, which have come from outside, are often brought in because we cut some flowers outside, mm. put them in a vase, and then the insects on those flowers decide your house plant's a nice place to live, mm. and then you've got a problem. Presumably, uh, this is another good reason then to always grow from seeds. Growing from seed, you're starting off uh, without introducing from outside. The nurseries themselves, that they try to make sure the plants that they sell um, to the garden centres are relatively free, but it's it's impractical, it's hard to do. And then at the garden centre too, 
um, you quite often see white um, butterflies flying around, et cetera, et cetera. There's insects. And, and of course, they're bringing in plants from lots of nurseries, and some of those plants might be trees or shrubs, which they don't treat for a white fly, but it could have white fly on it. And those white flies are not going to really be happy on that ornamental shrub. Instead, they'll look, oh, over there, there's some tomato seedlings. Mm, right. Mm. In. I, um, one of the things I've been doing, Wally, because of the, we've had rainy days, I have been enjoying immensely reading your gardening books. And I've learned such a lot. So thank you for writing those. I also, I had a lady on who was homesteading over in Dunedin. And she was telling me that she was relying on the Star Garden Guide. Have you heard of that one? Oh, Gardening by the Moon? No. it's by the, the Stars? No. It's the Star newspaper, I think. It's from Dunedin. It's oh, from right. the Otago okay. Daily Times. Right, okay. And so I went on to the Otago Daily Times and I ordered it. And it's an amazing uh, book because it goes back over 100 years, and. 20 years it was first published and it was by a early gardener um of some repute whose name escapes me which is embarrassing um and it's like in its 19th or 25th or something edition and of course the otage daily times is owned by the by a family and it was the grandfather um who started this and it's quite a wonderful book because of its a its history but B, it's been quite pertinent to me because it's particular for for Otago. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so I have been enjoying uh, reading my gardening books or reading, reading your gardening books, and that's been very helpful for learning as well, and, and that, that's something else we can be doing in winter, I guess. What else could we be doing in our garden this time of year, Wally? Okay. Now, one of the problems that I have people contact me each year around about this time or a little bit later on going into the spring is that the citrus tree is dying or other plants are dying. And and I say to them, well, okay, and quite often they send me a picture. And now if the picture's good, I can see the ground underneath and I've got a mulch underneath oh, it. Now, a mulch. a mulch. A mulch is what people use in dry times, in the summertime. They put a layer of material. Ah. It could be bark, it could be sawdust, it could be whatever, right, over the soil yeah. to conserve moisture. It's so, a good thing, right? Oh, in the summertime, magic. It's, it's ideal because you – when you water, that water is not going to be evaporated off by sun and wind. It'll be held because you've got this mulch over the soil. It could be weed mat uh, with bark over the top, whatever, right? It's a mulch, or what we call a mulch, M-U-L-C-H, I think it's really. Okay, now you get into the winter and the wet times, and, of course, the moisture in the soil doesn't escape because there's a mulch there. Hence, the roots in the soil uh, are not getting oxygen. The soil becomes stagnant. 
and the roots rot and the tree, the citrus tree or the plant or whatever dies because it's got no roots left. Mm. And that it's it's a real problem. Um, and is that people, just is that just for citrus trees or other trees or citrus trees particularly prone? It, it can be for um, anything that doesn't like wet feet, right? Um, I had one instance uh, some years ago. There was a lady. She had I can't remember the name of them, but some very expensive ornamental trees, right? And she planted them whenever, and they had recarpeted their house, and they had all, all this old carpet. So she thought, oh, this will be good. I'll put the old carpet over the ground uh, around these trees, and um, that will conserve the moisture in the summertime, which it did. But then when the winter came and the rains came, of course the trees suffered and they were dying. She rang me up and she said, what can I do? And, and I found out she had carpet down. I said, well, that's your problem. The carpet is holding the moisture in the ground and not allowing the soil to breathe and the roots are rotting. So is it, can it, is it too late to do something or is it, can you do something once you pick the problem up? Yeah, just scrape the mulch away. Scrape it away, rake it away, clear the root zone of uh, any plants such as citrus which don't like wet feet. And then the soil can breathe, um, the moisture in the soil, the wet soil, and, and let's face it, we've got places where it's flooding all mm. over the country, you know. Mm. Um, that amount of water is, of course, going to kill. There's nothing much you can do about that. But um, in situations where they're getting a lot of rain and they've got a citrus tree or other vulnerable plants, then they've got this problem. Now, besides taking the mulch away, which is the first thing, we have a, a spray called Perfection. It's like perfection, but it's P-E-R-K-F-E-C-T-I-O-N, Perfection, because the commercial variety is called Perk, P-E-R-K. Okay. Right, so yeah. we call it perfection for rose and other plants. Now, spray uh, your citrus tree or whatever vulnerable plants with that. That goes down to the roots and help them regenerate, right? Mm. And it's also magic on buxes. You know these people that grow these lovely little <laughs> buxes hedges or yes, walls, etc. Yes. Yes. They're prone to a disease called buxes disease, right? It's because the foliage becomes so dense that the moisture on the leaves, whether it rain or whatever, can't escape, and that moisture sits there and allows the fungus disease to establish, right? Mm. Our perfection will bring back from virtually deathbed a buxus uh, back into full glory over a period of a few months, as long as it's still got some leaf left. How, how does it do that, Wally? Um, it uh, regenerates. It's a kind of tonic, uh, mm. and it regenerates the plant and helps it overcome. It's ideal for diseases such as uh, botrytis, phytophthora, black spot, etc., etc. People use it on their roses. 
in the beginning of the season uh, to prevent or help prevent black spot and other fungal diseases. Um, blight on tomatoes, potatoes. Um, it will, if you catch them in the early stage of blight, it will actually um, kill or control the disease and you'll be able to harvest your crop. Um, mm. And that's another thing, potatoes. Now is the perfect time to grow potatoes, mm. right? Yeah. Now, the reason being, in New Zealand, we have a, an insect pest these days called the tomato potato psyllid, right? And and this came from Australia too. And it devastated potato crops um, down Opiki Way, out from Palmerston North there, all the way down to Shannon used to be potato growers. Now you go drive down that road and you don't even see a potato grower anymore. Why? Because the psyllid actually destroyed their livelihood and now they're growing other things um, with the land, no longer potatoes. The psyllid came in from overseas and it breeds so rapidly when the temperatures are in the mid-20s that there are literally thousands and thousands of millions of the things, right? When they attack a plant, such as a tomato, potato, tamarillo, they inject a toxin into the plant. And in the case of the potatoes, if they attack um, later in the season, no, sorry, early in the season, the tubers underneath will only grow as big as a marble and start reshooting. If they attack the plant later in the season when the tubers have actually established reasonably well, then when you harvest your potatoes, there'll be dark rings inside them and they'll taste no good, right? So that's the two indications that you've had solid problems. But because temperature is the main control of them, if you were to plant potatoes now and you think, oh, my God, I can't do that because of the frost, no, you dig a trench, you dig a trench, a good spade or spade and a half deep, right? And then you put your potato, which has already got its little sprouts on it, into the bottom of the trench. And underneath the potato, you put some goodies. Now, ideally, the best I've found is you put some um, gypsum, about a tablespoon of gypsum. You put... Uh, a small amount of uh, sheep manure pellets and a little bit, about a quarter of a teaspoon of a product we had called Biofos. That's a phosphate. Yeah. You sit your potato at the bottom of the trench on top of that little mound of goodies, right, and you cover it over so it's just covered. The sprouts, you can no longer see them. Within a short period of time, of course, those sprouts will grow and appear above the soil. You then put some more soil over to just cover them, and you keep on going. You never let the sprouts get like two or three inches tall, because if you do, you can still cover them and protect them from frost. But the real secret of this is you won't get any extra potatoes, because as long as you keep covering them, before they get tall, they will produce potatoes all the way up the hole. Ah. Up and up and up. And so 
It's like growing a potato in a barrel. You could have a barrel full of potatoes if you did the same thing, right? Literally a barrel full of potatoes. Mm. Um, so once you get up to soil level, and, of course, um, at that point of time, you start to mound, as mm. you would do normally when you've only planted them shallow, shallow right? As a result of that, you're going to be able to harvest your potatoes by Labor Weekend, depending upon variety, right, before the temperatures get up, before the sinners come along and devastate the crop. So you get in early yes. and you get the crop out early. Now, a problem arises at that point of time, I've found, is some people, um, they, they dig up a couple um, potatoes and, oh, the tubers are good size, uh, lovely, no rings inside them, good to go. They leave the rest of the crop in the ground and then it gets attacked. So then they dig the next lot up, they've got the dark rings in. The reason being is they left the foliage on the plants. They could have left the potatoes in the ground, but they need to cut the foliage off down to ground level, cover the stubble with a bit of soil, and let the potatoes just sit there till they're ready to dig. No foliage, no solid to attack. Simple. But you'd have to take the foliage away or you could just leave it on top? Oh, yeah, well, you probably put it in the compost heap. Got it. And but, how long will your potatoes stay in the ground like that? Quite some time before they reshoot, as you find out. Wow. Um, if you leave potatoes in the ground. Oh, I'm going to be doing this with Grace. Wally, you're giving me rather than my board beans. Now, seed potatoes. You buy, when you want to plant potatoes, you have to buy a seed potato, right? That's what they say, yes. They, they do it for a reason. Tell me. The, well, their um, argument is we have certified these potatoes are free of disease, right, or virus, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's very good. But the potatoes that you bought from the supermarket to eat and they left in the cupboard and they sprouted, no reason you can't grow them. And as people find, when they peel the damn things and throw the peelings out in the compost, they've suddenly got a crop of potatoes. <laughs> so you don't need seed potatoes. Um, the You don't, but a lot of people prefer. Yeah. Um, and, and the seed potatoes, are, they're already in cold storage from last season, right? Yeah. And they keep them in cold storage to prevent them from sprouting, right? When they come out of cold storage and they come into a warmer temperature, that's what initiates the sprouting. Hence the reason when you buy potatoes at the supermarket, you take them home, put them in the kitchen, it's warmer and they sprout. If you put them in the fridge, they wouldn't sprout for some time. Okay. So for argument's sake, Grace and I decide we'll do some plantings of potatoes. Even in Otago, we could be doing this. Yes. Yeah, because they're so, going to be safe from frost because they're always going to be covered. Got it. We're keen on our J. Bennies. So I head off to the supermarket and I buy some J. Bennies, right? Now, at this stage, they've got no shoots. Right. What do I do? Okay, just take them home, put them in the kitchen. I'll sprout. <laughs> the warmth. <laughs> okay. It's sprouting. And, yeah. and 
and, and when they you sprout, must think I'm pretty stupid, right? <laughs> when, when they sprout, we do a thing called greening them off, right? Oh, yeah. And this is where the little they've got little sprouts on them, right? Yeah. So we take them out, and ideally in a carport is a good place to do it. But now you've got a tunnel house. You put them in the tunnel house, right? Yeah. You leave them sitting in the sunlight with their little sprouts on. That hardens up the sprouts yeah. because of the light and makes them go greenish colour. Then they're ready to plant. My goodness. Um, when you say sprout, do you need to wait for the sprouts to get to a certain size? No. Uh, once they – it's the eyes that sprout, right? So yeah. as soon as you see some movement there and they're coming out, right? Yeah. If you left them in your dark cupboard, of course, they become great big, long, white sprouts. Yeah. Okay. Useless because they're, they're too soft and no good. No good why, for planting. Why do I have to sprout them before I put them in the ground? Um, is it a warmth thing? Yeah, it is because it gets them going. Okay. Um, if you put them into cold soil, they might just sit there until spring. Got it. And then – uh, when the soil warms up, they think, oh, it's time to go now. So oh, how exciting. Sprouting. Oh, how exciting. Oh, gosh, you're wonderful. I'm going to get some. Oh, next time we're on, I'll give you a report. And the trench, just out of interest, did you say one and a half spades depth or two spade depths? Yeah, whatever you prefer. Um, at least a spade depth, but yeah. one and a half spade depths. You just dig your trench, leave the soil on the side, and that's going to be used as you cover over over a period of time. You check them every day or two, and as soon as you see some little sprouts, yep. um, green foliage comes through, that is vulnerable to frost. So yep. if you covered it with a bit of soil, of course the soil is insulating. Great. Do you know, I'm so slow. I have to listen to what you say. I have to take notes as you're talking, and then I have to read your book. And then I think I think I I think I've got this because it is amazing when you start up. It's a lot of information, Wally. Yeah, yeah, and and somebody like me had done it for too many years. Well, I worked out you going. started you started when you're seven, and I started when I'm sixty-seven. So you know you got sixty years on me. Okay. Um, yep. Now, everyone, we've been talking real talk with Rodney Hyde with Wally Richards. You can give Wally a ring. He'll have his people answered. I always make that joke. It's Wally who answers. You can give Wally a ring, 0800-466-464. You can send Wally an email, wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. The Garden News is tricky. It's got one N. Figure it out. wallyjr at gardennews.co.nz. That's a gardening test that Wally has in because it took me about 10 goes to get the email to him because he wants to sort of cut out the um, people like me that are a bit slow. It's Garden News. So Wally JR at gardennews.go.nz. Give him a call, 0800-466-464. He is amazing. Wally, I just love talking to you, and you're very inspirational because I just want to go gardening whenever I've spoken to you, and it's uh, it's overcast here but not raining. So right. – um, We'll start getting out. I think I actually have some potatoes in the pantry that might have some eyes, and I'll put them in the tunnel house. Um, I'm so excited 
by gardening. And I'm so excited by, I enjoyed my lettuces so much. And the amount of money I saved, it's gobsmacking. It's mm, unbelievable mm. when you start looking at it. And I go down the supermarkets and I think I'm going to grow that, I'm going to grow that, I'm going to grow that. Um, so thank you so much for your help, Wally. Uh, we shall talk again in a fortnight. Okay, just one point before we go. Yes, um, please. The products we talked about, like the flowers of sulfur, um, yes. et cetera, et cetera, we have a mail-order website that people can go to. Yes, which is the same as our telephone number. So it's www.0800-466-464.co.nz. dot o eight hundred four double six four six four dot co dot nz. And I can order straight on that web page, correct? Yeah, but you can't pay for it on that because what happens is when the order comes to me, I phone you and I sort out the freight and the mode of payment, like you can do credit cards safely over the phone or bank transfer, and I talk to you and explain anything about the products. At the same time, it's what we call, it's a, it's a funny word, it's called service. <laughs> well, you're, you're amazing. I am amazed, by the way, how many people know you and have interacted with you over the years. You're okay. quite well known. And I had a wonderful email from, oh, a garden place, a garden place nearby. And they said, what a character you are um, and how much I've enjoyed over the years doing business with you. So, Wally, you do know about customer service. You're always a pleasure. That was Wally Richards. We've been talking on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, uh, the popular man, the man of the hour, Wally Richards, helping people feed themselves, feed their families, feed their neighbours with beautiful nutrient-dense food while saving untold amounts of money, which is not to be sneezed at these days. Thank you for listening. And that was Wally Richards, our gardening guru. Lovely. Thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. 
small towns, everybody slow down, give them everything you have. Mask up, backs up, get your body trashed up, better do what they ask. It's alright, okay, sorry but you can't pray, gotta keep the church doors closed. No superstitions, a saint politician will tell you what you need to know. Citizen fools and brand new rules make everyone a hero now. So keep your distance, no resistance, only do what you're allowed Cash that check, go dance in the wreck, but just don't speak your mind Get your facts from the paid contracts, cause never will they tell a lie They don't know me They don't own me Media protectors tell me who to love and hate Jail in the network, hail to the Zuckberg Head down, just behave Liberty, freedom, angels, demons Someone's in control Well, no way, no how I wouldn't say it too loud Don't you know they're on patrol? Need more likes, post up, let's fight There's no way that you're wrong Gotta listen to the science Cause it's all about compliance You agree or you're gone But they don't know me No corruption, just as advertised You've been labeled and I've enabled Better apologize Propaganda, racist slander Time to organize Shot bang, who's next? Brain dead, useless Show it on the TV screen Tell me who to vote for Gotta start a new war Wouldn't wanna live in peace Divide and conquer Weak, not stronger Everybody know your place do it now, won't hurt, dig into your own dirt Virtue found its grave, they don't know me They don't own me For silence, mainstream message Won't you guide us, you know what is best For our own good Anti this and anti that Cancel this and cancel that Take it to the streets and the neighborhoods 
Worship actors, food and drugs Brand yourself, give them your blood Don't believe your eyes, don't look around Fake news, rumors, okay boomer Ignorance will stain our future Will you make it through or burn it down? Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. What is happening to our universities? I loved going to university. It changed my life. It set me up in life. It was absolutely wonderful. And I think of a university as an institution that is picking up the academically inclined, the people that like thinking and debating ideas and concepts and developing their ability to think critically, to grow, to learn new things, to listen to others, to self-criticize and criticize others, realizing that you're criticizing the ideas, not the person. And in so doing, setting people up for a life of learning a life of understanding, a life of being a good citizen and providing our country and the world with our political leaders, our business leaders, our community leaders, our scientists, our entrepreneurs, our teachers, our parents, everything. And I think of our our universities as so important. But what is happening there? Because we read in the legacy media about strange things, about people being shut down because their ideas are somehow wrong and harmful. And we hear of students getting triggered and being upset and needing safe safe spaces. And we've all had that experience, I think, of seeing bright young family members and Friends, friends, children going off to university as bright young things and sort of becoming robotic in their views of how the world is. Well, to help us understand what's going on, we're very lucky to have back our very own Professor Elizabeth Rata. Good morning, Professor. Good morning, Rodney. Thank you for the invitation to come back and, and talk. Well, your discussion on education... Um, had great feedback, people loved it, it was hugely insightful, and we're very excited to have you to explain to us what's happening in universities, because to be frank, 
it's not something most of us have much to do with. We might have gone to university once, but it's been a long time since we've been to university. But it seems to us on the outside, now you're at Auckland University, it seems to those of us on the outside, it seems so damn peculiar. What is going on in your view? In your introduction, you... um captured very, very well what is actually in the um, 2020 Education Act, which talks about um, the university's principal aim is to develop intellectual independence in students. So that's in the legislation. Um, Something else in the legislation is giving academic staff and students freedom, and I quote, within the law to question and test, received wisdom, to put forward new ideas, and here's here's the good one, to state controversial or unpopular opinions. So it's there in the legislation. Why isn't it happening? And I think we can also look to the legislation to get some understanding about what's gone wrong, because the legislation also says that university councils are to acknowledge the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. So that's one point. The second point is that um, there is a section in the Act which states, Section 281, encourages the greatest possible student participation by underrepresented groups. Now let's look at those two things. The first one, the treaty. Now, that was in 2020, and notice the word acknowledge. Well, by last year, when I had another look at the Act, I saw that the word had changed to honour, commitment. And in university policies and university strategic plans, we now see the words honour, commitment, you know, to the principles of the treaty. Now, that's the central problem that we've got uh, treatyism, as I call it, is um, New Zealand's form of uh, of identity um, ideology or communitarianism is the term I use. And the whole retribalization movement from the 1980s has used this new revisionist treaty. I mean, it's not the treaty from 1840. It's a completely new version of the treaty that was developed by these identity ideologues, these retribalists in the 1980s to push the retribalizing agenda throughout all our institutions. And it was developed by some who are actually in the universities themselves. So that's why it's deep in the universities, the idea that um, the treaty has principles, the idea that the treaty is a partnership. No, it's not. It's it's, um, a version that was developed in the 1980s, and it's been a method to a very, very effective strategy to racialise New Zealand society. But this is what I don't understand, um, that... In the 80s, we had radicals, and they were young people that had been to university, young Maori, and we had some academics who, quite frankly, 
we sort of looked upon as fringe academics, you know, like Ranganui Walker writing in The Listener and coming out with what I thought at the time was a very jaundiced view um, of history and of how the world worked. But somehow these ideas have landed on fertile ground. My goodness, what Ranganui Walker was saying is very conservative now. It's landed on fertile ground. It's infected everything of the body politic. The university appears to be chock-a-block with it. The universities must have agreed with it going into legislation and into these documents because we've never heard of any pushback. And it's now no longer the domain of Maori studies, but biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, economics. Professors and academics who you think would be rigorous scholars in the Western tradition. And yet, here we have it. How have they succumbed? Yes, that's the nub of the matter. Before I talk about that, Rodney, I want to make a really important point, and that is I don't use the term Māori and non-Māori. Um, you know, civil society people can identify however they wish to, that freedom, that's your freedom. Um, I talk about tribalists and non-tri and other. And the tribalists are a real mixture of people. They are um from various ethnicities. They are academics, politicians, lobbyists, activists, uh, intellectuals, a range of people who are brought together by this, um, and I think I referred to it in our last talk, but it's it's quite um, complex, so I'll refer to it again, this unholy alliance of the first thing is an intellectual movement which swept through the Western world from the 60s and got people very excited um, called postmodernism. Mm. I mean, it's died in other places, but in New Zealand it served quite a good purpose because postmodernism says there's no reality, there's no truth, there's just multiple truths, there are multiple ways of knowing. Um, whatever you decide is your truth, your reality, that's okay. That really took hold. I mean, it's, it's exciting for young people. Mm. It really took hold in this country because it joined forces with another very strong intellectual and political movement, um, critical theory or Marxism. And the, critical theory has um, established itself in our universities, in the social sciences and education, because um, it it promotes the idea that it's not enough to be an academic and to investigate, to argue with the evidence and, and to explain. Now, it says the purpose of intellectual work, academic work, is to transform society. So it says you must be an advocate. You must be an advocate for a position, a political position. So you've got postmodernism, which says, you know, 
anything goes. Your truth is as good as any. Um, all truths are the same. There's no such thing as universal science. There are just the various realities and truths of different groups. Align that with um, Marxist critical theory, which says that you must use intellectual ideas to transform society, so a very powerful political message. Uh, my position is that inter um, academics should not bring their political positions into the academy, that your the purpose is to you know investigate what the world is, to explain what the world is. Well, it's that no. wonderful old distinction between is and ought. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yes. And now as well as those two powerful movements, postmodernism, Marxist critical theory, um, the other one is identity ideology. Now that's hugely powerful. And that, when you align it with those other two forces, you can see how the combination really took off. What is identity ideology? Well, I, the other term I use for it is communitarianism. And if you look at the word community, the idea of the group, compare that communitarianism on one hand with liberalism on the other. Liberalism is all about the individual. Freedom belongs to the individual. Communitarianism is what you find in societies and political systems where the group is put before the individual. If you think of China today, you think of Russia, the notion that it is the group that matters. The individual is subservient to the group. Now, New Zealand's version of, of identity ideology or communitarianism is the tribe, is retribalization. So those who wished to acquire economic resources and political power have been able to harness those three intellectual movements, bring them together in a very powerful trifecta, and that has captured our institutions. And it's, it's very done, toxic, isn't it? Oh, yes. And it's it's been so successful because it uses a variety of strategies. And one of the strategies is to um, accuse anyone who disagrees as being racist. And, that and, and the last thing any Kiwi wants to be as racist. Kiwis are like, like most people throughout the world, are fair and decent people. Um, and of course, they don't want to be um, labelled as racists. And you don't want to be seen with racists. No, no. Or people that could be labelled racist. It's and, a devastating attack. And, and when um, tribalists captured our institutions, they are not only able to accuse individuals of racism, but are able to affect their careers, to stop them being promoted, for example. So it's um, with there, There's another interesting thing in here, if I may interrupt, uh, Professor. I'll, I'll call you Elizabeth. I don't mean to be disrespectful. It just helps the conversation. I've spoken to you and you said you didn't mind, but we very much understand that you're a professor. But, Elizabeth, there's also this other thing, and I'm gaining an understanding of this. They so 
enormous confusion. So when you're talking about postmodernism, critical theory, identity ideology, it's sort of like this lamange of thinking. And if you try and grasp it and understand it, it sort of is like trying to pick up honey or something. It's sort of running through your fingers and you can't understand it. And when you sit down, not that you do because you can't try and talk to a person who's pontificating in this way, you can't actually discuss it because you can't get to the nub of it. It's, I don't know, it's it's a weirdest thing. Is that I really like correct your, in that? <laughs> I like your reference to a blancmange. Makes me think of my mother making blancmange. Ah, but it's <laughs> so hard. In it's the so hard. It's so hard to grasp. Yeah, yeah. That's why I um, am unable to do interviews with mainstream media because it's impossible to do sound bites. It's impossible to talk with what two, one or two minutes. I can't do it. That's um, why I'm very grateful. You know for. Mm you giving me time to talk because mm. it's you know trying to pull the blamange apart and then explain what's going on it, it's 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 really complex and don't these advocates of this approach they don't appear to have a good understanding of what even they're criticizing or what they're against, or what they're proposing, and that they use rhetorical and debating tricks to confuse, to misdirect, and to label, and even dehumanize anyone right. who questions yeah. them. It's like a it's a it's a political psychological sort of weapon that's been unleashed on our universities in life. Is, is that how you would characterise it or am I overblowing it? No, no, you're right. And what happens is that tribalists see it from their position. Critical theorists see it from theirs. Um, postmodernists from theirs. So to grasp the overall picture and the way these three movements come together as such a powerful force um, is I think is difficult even for those who are promoting any of those positions to grasp themselves. Mm. They see their own interests and uh, advocate um, in different ways. For example, tribalists would say, in fact, would merge with critical theorists and saying it's all about equity. Well, of course, it's not about equity. There are many um, non-Māori who are poor. There are many Māori who are poor. There are many Māori in the professional and managerial class, many who are not Māori who are. I mean, it's not actually about equity at all. But both critical theory and tribalists promote the idea that it's all about equity. And that's one over many of the progressive left who say, yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds reasonable. That sounds fair. And because most people are fair and decent, they think, yeah, if it's about equity, um, I'll support it. But of course, it's not about equity. It's about a small group acquiring 
enormous political power in order to acquire economic resources. That's at the root of it all. It's that calculated. It's that calculated. Yes, it is. And that's why we're looking at just a small group of individuals who for the last 30 years, um, the main group is the Iwi Leaders Forum. People in the Iwi Leaders Forum have worked tirelessly and enormously effectively. You know, their strategies are second to none to achieve the, um, the mandate for the transformation of New Zealand society. And the mandate is the Treaty of Waitangi to insist Mm. on the revisionist contemporary version of the treaty being the authority for... um, Now, when I talk about tribalism, I don't mean people identifying with their tribe in civil society. I mean the tribe as a political category. That's a really important distinction. I am not opposed in any way to people identifying with any sort of heritage group. I mean, it's something mm. we all like to do, you know, to think about our ancestors. Yeah, Scottish clan. Where and, I you came know, from cultural practices of our ancestors. It, it's, it gives us great psychological security and social you know, sense of belonging. Absolutely fine. That's civil society. When I talk about tribalism, I am talking about strategies to put another political category into our democratic system. So to replace the political category of the citizen. Liberal democracy, there is one political category, that is the individual citizen. That's the person who holds the rights. That's the person to whom the government is accountable. That's the political category of democracy. Now, if you bring in another political category of um, people who, who whose rights are based on, um, say, heritage or on any other um, categorizing principle, then you under, you don't just undermine actually, you destroy, you destroy the political it. category of the individual citizen. So mm-hmm. what we're looking at is extremely serious. Because you can't have a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. No, you can't. You can certainly have a vibrant society where you have, you know, um, all sorts of uh, iwi activity, all sorts of group activity, a vibrant culture out in civil society. But Mm. when it comes to the government, it comes to our institutions and the law, then there is only one political category, the individual citizen. And that's where our politics lets us down because particularly I've observed in New Zealand politics, we tend to think the truth is just in the middle, (laughs) right? And we don't have a principle guiding us. And so step by step, we have allowed what you described quite brilliantly as this retribalization because you think, oh, well, we'll put in this Education 2020 Act, the principles of the treaty. And not only will we um, acknowledge them, we'll honour them. And to a politician, that's sort of meeting everyone halfway. But in meeting everyone halfway, you completely change the makeup and political constitution of New Zealand 
and it's happened everywhere. And what what's going on? You're absolutely right in taking it back to the basic principle. Now, the idea of liberal democracy of the individual citizen is based on the principle of universalism, not mm-hmm. that we are divided um, into various groups, for example, a race group. No, universalism means we are all human beings before Mm. we are anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's the principle of universalism that should, that is the basis of democracy. And if you start to um, undermine that, if you start to do white and that, then that's it. Um, And the peculiar, just to jump in there, the peculiar aspect of that, Elizabeth, is that the original treaty, as agreed in 1840, was based upon that. That's its entire point, Mm -hmm. that we're not going to live as groups of people. We're going to live as citizens universally under the rule of law. And funnily enough, that treaty has been used now on a modern interpretation to destroy that very thing. Mm. Is that fair? That is. And of course, universalism, the idea that there is a human being, is a very modern idea. I mean, up until about 300 years ago, the idea was that you were a member of your group before you were anything else, you know, a member of a religion, a yes. member of, you were um, part of an empire under the rule of the emperor. Um, you know, people saw themselves as fundamentally belonging to a group. And the great change which really makes us modern is that we started, we we saw ourselves know as universal human beings and demanded a political system that mm. recognised that. Mm. And, of course, this is Karl Popper's, to me, his great, the work that affected me very deeply growing up, the open society and its enemies. And, of course, what you, where you're describing is a closed society where you owe your allegiance to the group, uh, to the tribe, to the class, to the religion, your ideas and thinking are described by the group and you can't think outside the group. And those who are outside the group are enemies and are best destroyed. Yeah. That's the real danger, isn't it? Because as soon as you have a closed group, then you have people who don't belong to it. And that's how enemies are created. You're not one of us. No. Therefore, we can do what we want to you. And that's a beautiful thing of universalism because you recognize everyone as a human being. Yeah, that's right. And, I mean, just look at the word university. Mm -hmm. A university is a place for... Um, ideas that have come from everywhere, um, maths, you know, from mm. from India. Um, you know, these ideas don't belong. Although um, they're often referred to as Western, that's probably because the Enlightenment was so pivotal at mm. this period of modernity and promoted these ideas. But they come from come from everywhere. Um, 
Yeah, I don't use the term Western because I think that that creates an idea that they belong to a certain group. But That's I think right. we understand that it was in the West that uh, because of the political system, which was um, increasingly democratic, many of these ideas were able to flourish. I'm appreciating listening to you that you've not only given it a great deal of thought, but you've taken great care about the words that are used. Because the what we're up against are very potent use of words. Mm-hmm. And you correctly pulled me up because I've become trapped in using the phrase Maori versus non-Maori, right? Yeah. And in doing that, I've completely bought in to my opponent's argument. Oh Rodney, yeah, yeah. Haven't I? You're, because it's not yeah, a eth- it's have. not a it's not an ethnic thing. And your phrase tribalist versus non-tribalist gets it back to universal principles because the human is making a choice. I don't have a choice whether I marry or not marry, but I have a choice about whether I'm a tribalist or a universalist, I guess the phrase is, or an open society person who believes in living in an open society. And that's the argument. Likewise, we use the shorthand Western tradition, Western civilization. That's used against us, that shorthand, because it can be used to suggest that you're being derogatory of other ethnic groups and origins, other civilizations, other ways of living, and you're not. It's just a shorthand phrase. And so you're very, very good as you have to be because what we're realizing is it's this use of words and terms that have become so powerful and emotive um, and divisive. Because you've captured it so well, Rodney. I think it was worthwhile talking a bit more about this language, language used as a strategy of division. And I like tribalists and universalists. Universalists is a really good term. I mean, non-tribalists doesn't actually mean anything. So yeah. I think universalist is actually the, the, the term I, I might start using more. And tribalist, um, although in New Zealand it applies to a particular political um, movement, um, it captures the idea of the group mm. being put um, ahead of, of all others in terms of, of the political category. We knew. One of the things that has become apparent from outside the university looking in is this extraordinary shutdown of free speech. And we pick up on it dimly by seeing famously Don Brash being disinvited 
for Massey University, which is extraordinary if it was anyone who was going to give a speech, because I'm like a free speech absolutist. You know, I like bad ideas get rooted out by hearing them, not by driving them underground in my conception. But Don Brash was Reserve Bank governor and leader of the National Party, so you can't get more mainstream in a funny way than that. I would have the fringe being invited to the university, if you know what I mean. But this was the mainstream being excluded. And we also learn of academics being condemned officially, but more powerfully condemned by their peers for what can only be termed wrong think. How has that come about? Well, I think it's come about because those three intellectual movements I um, spoke about at first have taken over the academy. So people who promote those ideas are now have now managed to alter policies and practices within the university, and the strategy used is either is called either decolonization or indigenization. Indigenization is now the, the more popular term. So all our universities are indigenizing at great speed. This should be of huge concern to all of us because they are public universities. They are our universities. So they are indigenizing, which means that the treaty um, is is put into all policies and practices in the university, and we are required to honor the treaty. The second strategy used is to put Matauranga Maori or traditional beliefs with into the curriculum. Now that is different from where they should be. Mataranga Māori, like any traditional beliefs, um, should be in something we study about, you know, in anthropology mm. or in mm. history or in literature. So in literature, of course, the great myths of the world. Yes, we do need to study those, but we need to study about Mātauranga Māori. But the strategy is to put Mātauranga Māori as a belief system to inculcate our students and staff into a belief system and putting the belief system into the university. Now, you can't do that because a university is about... um, investigating everything and this belief- is this this is this you can't be a little bit right you yeah, either right. one or the yes, other yes yeah beliefs belong in civil society you know you it might yeah. be your religion it might be the cultural um group um to which you belong and they're your beliefs they're part of the cultural beliefs and practices of your social group but the university and our government institutions as well they are quite different you don't bring your beliefs in there. You know, there are, uh, it's based on universalism. And I would, I, I think that what must happen if we are going to um, rescue our universities, because our international reputation is at stake, no doubt about that, it's at stake. Other country, other universities are looking on us and thinking, what is going on in New Zealand? 
and talking about it. So in order to rescue our universities, uh, the university leaders must remove the idea that we have to honour the treaty from the university. If you wish to, in your private capacity, honour the treaty, that is your right. But the university as an institution does not need, must not align itself to promoting any ideology. And treatyism is an ideology like any other. And the idea that um, people in the university need to promote and to believe in Mātauranga Māori or traditional beliefs, uh, that also must be removed. And I would ask our university leaders to, to move on this, to do it, before any more damage is done. There are bad actors here, aren't there? There are, yes. It, there, are, there are people who have um, promoted these ideas for 30, 40 years mm. and who are now in positions of considerable power. So that is why it is very difficult for especially younger academics to speak out, hence my request to university leaders to mm. take the lead in this. For students too, what I've observed, like, I notice it with um, journalists and their writing. I don't interact with journalists now, but um, I notice in their writing. I notice it with um, our young political leadership when they pontificate. And I notice it directly with school teachers at my children's schools. And you're getting this wave and wave and wave of postmodernism, critical theory, tribalism just spewed out, you know, in every email, in every communication, lovely teachers, lovely principal, out it comes, right? And I don't think of them as bad actors. I think of them as going with the flow and, quite frankly, lazy. Because my observation of trying to make sense of the world as a critical scientist against the data is hard work. <laughs> and it's messy and you can't, you're not clever enough to see what's going on. But you go off to university now or you take the latest bump from the ministry or from the university hierarchy, life is so easy because you have all the answers. It's here and out it goes. And as long as you don't deviate, you're safe. And so I think there's also this intellectual political laziness that has allowed these bad actors to assume extraordinary significance and actually take over, and I'm going to say this advisedly, our country. Because that's what I get at my local little school. Yeah. Yes, well, the idea that, um, you know, 
it seems to me that there are many people who haven't grasped that the this idea that the treaty has is a partnership with principles only goes back to 1987. Yes. And there are many people who don't know that, who, who claim, and this includes journalists, who claim that the original treaty was a partnership. But I would say it doesn't actually matter what the original treaty said. Mm-hmm. The treaty right. is a historical document. You know, we've moved on. Yes. Other things that happened in 1840, we don't stick to those no. either. No. Um, no, we, we don't. We, 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 and and um, there are values that allow us to live in a culturally, ethnically, religiously diverse society and all get along. And they're the universalist values. And the tribalist values are the values that put one group against another group. And inherent in this is this idea that the two groups can't communicate, that they can't debate, that they can't discuss, that they can't reach the truth or justice or a reasonable conclusion that the groups themselves are antithetical. And that's why we are seeing it heading to you can't speak here. And the next step is violence. And I know I'm jumping around, but you've got me thinking about this, Elizabeth. That was what was so significant about the J.D.K. Keen, the Posey Parker, was we thought both the deplatforming and the rise of violence because of this ideology that two groups can't talk. That my, I think like I do because I'm an old white man. And, and that's, that's very much postmodernism. That's postmodernism's contribution to the trifecta, the idea that how you think, your very being, what you do, is the result of who you are, and who you are is a member of a group mm. rather than this you know, universal person. And um, easily dismissed without having to answer the critique. That's right. And those words are in the refreshed curriculum. This notion that there are diverse ways of knowing, being, and doing, that is in the that is the basis of the refreshed curriculum. It is straight postmodernism and it serves both critical theory and it serves tribalism. It's really dangerous. Now I was um a, Several other colleagues wrote to Chris Hipkins um, in February and said and it was an open letter um, and said, This has happened, this is what's going on, um, Mr. Hipkins, and it's happened on your watch. What can you know? That this is what we we recommend you do. Take the print, take the treaty, take the principles of the treaty out of education legislation and go back to having subjects and taught in schools and um 
you know, this basis in universalism that I've spoken about. Well, I didn't hear, I didn't get a reply from him except an acknowledgement of, of recent. But because... it, it's happened on his watch since um, 2017 in particular. It's been quick, hasn't it? It's, it's been, been quick. very, very quick. It, well, the mm -hmm. ideas, as you say, go back to the 80s, mm -hmm. but the grasp of legislative intent so that your university agitators can point, oh, no, we can't have Don Brash speaking at the university because we have to honour the treaty. Now, Don Brash will say, but I am honouring the treaty, right? <laughs> no, 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 because we interpret the treaty this way which is the true way. And this is this is as old as time itself. It is Catholics fighting Protestants over nothing. That's it's right. And that's what, that's what we're in danger of doing, of having groups that are so completely divided and divided in terms of how the past is interpreted, that there is no way going forward together. There's one other point I want to make, Rodney, and that is the um, people who are now in charge of the universities are the people who have come through this this trifecta of ideas. Um, and for some of them, they are now in a position to put into effect the ideas that they um, have developed in their PhDs, in their masters, and their doctoral dissertations. So their time has come, actually, and and mm. they are moving fast. The odd thing to appreciate, too, Elizabeth, speaking with you, and I mean, we're we're sort of we're having a wonderful conv conversation, and we're exploring it in a way that I've never done before, because until recently. I'd always shied away from the debate because I've never enjoyed sociology and I've never enjoyed um, trying to understand these complex terms and phrases because to me it was sort of looking at how many angels sort of dance on a pin um, and I was more interested in hard and fast data, if you know what I mean. And this stuff has bubbled away and is now biting us all in the proverbial backside. It's legislated for, they're in power, they're in control. And so as you and I are discussing this, it's sort of things are firing off in my brain, and I apologize for that. But one of the interesting things that occurs to me is that I'm reminded of having this explained, that we have been living in terms of human civilization in the exception, not the rule. That is to say, living with universal principles where the individual human being is valued and respected and is seen as the locus of morals and thought and should be under the same set of rules as every other human being, that is the absolute, in terms of our time on earth, that is the merest moment. 
and that the great mass of time that humans have been, we've been warring factions and tribes who don't understand each other. That's why group, you know, the group is so seductive. Yes, we're reaching back to our past. Yes, what we need to know is we can have both. And in the I've I've spoken about it as the idea of partial loyalty. We can be within our group, in civil society, in our families, and be totally loyal, you know, be absolutely committed. That's our identity. Partial loyalty means that then we have the public space, the modern public space, modern institutions, and that's where we are a different type of person. We Mm. are that individual who has, and if you think of the word authority, the author of oneself, it's quite Mm. a powerful idea. Mm. So we are the authors of ourselves. We can decide to be totally loyal to our group, in civil society, in our private, the private sphere, but then when it comes to the public sphere, that's where we are a universal human being. Speaking with someone like Chris Hipkins, whom I don't really know, because he was just a young MP um, when I was going out the door, but I can guess a lot about him and have suppositions, and I imagine he's done a BA in politics or something, you know, ridiculous, and um, is pumped up with this ideology surrounded by advisors of the ideology who believe they're on the right side of history. And they remind me of the Red Guards. Um, They remind me of the Jacobites and the French Revolution. They remind me of religious zealots who are going about, you know, saving the world or Pol Pot Year Zero. These are the extreme examples from history, but their zealotry and their dismissal of any criticism without the need to even answer to it. So you write a letter to them, and we know exactly what will go on in his head if he did read it, which is, oh, no, Prof Rata, oh, yeah, old girl at the university, you know, they'll all die out soon. Um, we're, we're what's coming, you know. She's schooled in the old ways. They feel no need to engage. And because you can't engage with them and they've got power, well, there's no recourse. There's no way forward. There's no, there's no ability that you have no, how do you, have you got advice for us? I mean, here we are talking and you can imagine if a wokester or a postmodernist or a tribalist or a critical theorist or an identity ideologue or one with the whole trifecta was listening, I'd just be um, thumping their head on the table, listen to those two people talk. Oh, I can't believe it. I'm going to go on Twitter and say how outraged and offended I am. Oh, I'm going to have to run off to a safe space. They're not going to engage with us. So we can't reach them. Yeah. Yes, it's it's extreme. It really is serious because of that. The division is now so great. Um, and there's a, this sort of block wall um, 
I gave a speech yesterday to a group who asked a similar question. You know, what can we do? Um, some of them were people who, who were, some were lawyers. And I said, you know, you, you just must all speak out. You must you, you must keep talking. You must not be silenced. Um, look at what's going on with the Law Society at the moment, the idea that the Law I Society know. is going to bring in commitment to the treaty. Well, I know. Um, I mean, that's, that, that commitment to the treaty is now in our um, government institutions. Now it's moving into the institutions and in civil society. We must take it out. Those who are still, who still have influence, who still are in positions, must resist. Um, you know, With all every fibre of our being. Absolutely. I mean, my I see my task as explaining. I've mm. been researching this for four decades. I understand what's going on. So up until recently, I've actually said no to invitations because I don't like. I don't, sorry, Rodney. <laughs> I'm not. It's it's not easy for me to give no, speeches, do interviews, and so on. But I've realised that because I have these decades where I've investigated this issue, I'm I'm in a position to explain it, and I feel it's my duty to explain. Now, that's quite different from a critic and conscious, conscience position where I want to promote my own politics. No, I'm not doing that. No. I'm explaining what I have researched um, using argument and using the evidence that is in all, all my academic work, which is recognised internationally. So I feel in a position to be able to say these things. And that's what a university professor's job is. Yes, it is. But I everyone mean, else, everyone else also has a role. We all do. We yes. Individual citizens, and as citizens, yes. if we value the political system of democracy, then we must speak for it. We must, you know. <laughs> you must appreciate, though, for the likes of me and our listeners, how bewildering it is. Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. And how maddeningly frustrating it is, how hard it is to understand why people in authority and clever people who are credentialed can speak and advocate such rot and if we say Anything we're dismissed as Archie Bunker or you know a Nazi on the flimsiest of things, and we feel I'm speaking for myself, we feel insulted and abused at every turn to the point where. We feel, again, I'm speaking for myself, where I feel everything has become so politically, ideologically driven that 
the smallest thing <laughs> to coin their phrase trigger me. So even reading in the newspaper, Aotearoa over this, or having to f- try and figure out what some government department is because it's now got a Maori name, just drives me nuts because I feel marginalized, dismissed, and every value that I hold near and dear as providing for a peaceful, prosperous society that we once had has been lost. I think it would be really interesting to look at the... um, the doctoral and master's dissertations, the theses done by those in our ministries. Say, look, take the Ministry of Education. I I think that many people in the ministry would have done a PhD thesis with a strong postmodern flavour. Um, you know, I might be proved wrong, but I think that is the I case. People throughout our institutions who believe that there is no such thing as um, universal um, scientific methods, um, who reject universalism while enjoying the fruits of mm. what 200 years of universalism. Mm. And as well as rejecting universalism, they reject the notion of progress and development. Now, that two words you don't hear often now, and yet it's almost as though those terms progress and development, we need to rescue them as part of our language because what they have been sullied by being associated with um, the destruction of the environment. Well, hang on, progress and development are also associated with the fact that we now live, um, you know, to an old age instead of, you know, in, mm. in our early 30s, um, mm. that we have good health, that we live that we live a life that was only available to the, the, the most powerful people in the past. So, you know, progress and development, they, they would be two words that I would, um, I think, need rescuing and need using quite a lot. Mm. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde. We're having this Another amazing tour de force with Professor Elizabeth Rata uh, about, well, what gets cast around as wokeism, but it's much deeper than that, and we're all struggling to understand it. Prof Rata spent 40 years studying it. Now, Professor, do you come yourself under threat, like a student's rude to you? Do you, do you get a rudeness hurled at you because you're speaking out? Um, I don't think about that. I um, I I'm so deeply um, interested in ideas and in the ideas that I work with. They tend to block out. <laughs> oh, good. Block out these other things, and you know, in the end, you just have to. Um, you 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 have to live a principled life, and, you, and that's what I, I, I try to do. I um, had a student in 1989 call me a Nazi. 
because I was advocating for freedom. And we had a Mount Pelerin conference at Christchurch in 1989, and one of my students turned up as a protester. He went on to marry a green minister of the crown. So they are a perfect pair. And I was so shocked to be called a Nazi because I didn't know of anything more abhorrent. I wouldn't call anyone a Nazi ever. And I couldn't imagine being so confused about the world that someone who stood up for individual freedom could be equated as a Nazi. Since that time, I have been called all manner of things. And it, it, it does trouble me. But I realize now it's just it's just a weapon. It, it, it's it's you get called a um anti-vaxxer, a racist, a transphobe, a, a climate denier, uh anti so these these phrases, dinosaur. Uh, cis, cis white man, all these things are designed to dehumanize, to dismiss, to reject, and shut up. And that's all part of this opposition of free speech. Yeah. Um, and this bubbling violence. Because you and I both know that if we can't talk about every every idea in our head and debate ideas, then how do you decide how you're going to live and run a society? Well, you can only decide by who's got the guns, who's in power. And those that are out of power get told and aren't part of it. And this is why what you're doing is so important because it's never too late. It can always be rescued, but it actually starts by hearing you speak because you explain it for us. You put it into context for us. You explain where it's come from. You explain how it's got to a position of power and influence. And in doing that, you open up for what we have to do. And the key thing is to be like you, to speak up. So I feel very blessed that you're in our country, Elizabeth. Um and I feel very blessed that you come on our show. I would have you on every day for three hours just talking because it is so wonderfully enriching and enlightening. Um, but I do hope you'll come back. I'd love to, Rodney. It's, 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 you know, can I just finish with making the comment that if Please. we look at civil society... 
actually, the reality is pretty good. You know, you think of all our families made up of people from all sorts of backgrounds, Mm. all sorts of ethnicities, all within one family. We must not let the division occur in society, especially not within our families. So there's a lot at stake, Mm. but it's worth, you know, it's worth speaking up for. What a wonderful reminder. Look at your family, look at your neighbourhood. What a wonderful and great country. Let's preserve it. Let's keep it. Uh, That was Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We had the wonderful Prof Elizabeth Rata. What a national treasure she is. And what a brave person, because she doesn't have to speak out like this. But I imagine if you understand what's at stake, whether our children's children are going to live in a free and open society or a closed and nasty one, you've got no option. Send us a text, 2057. Send me an email, inbox at Reality Check Radio. It's been wonderful to have you along. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we're in that special place where I get to hear from you from the mailbag, from the text and the email. So do keep them coming. Text 2057, email inbox at realitycheck.radio. Here we go. Oh, they're so lovely. Here is one for Moonard. Rodney, after listening to you opening up, I have become a fan. Oh, that's kind. Never was before. But now, yes. Thanks for standing up. You put all other MPs to shame. Yeah, it's, I'm not an MP. I don't know how I'd behave if I was there, truthfully. I don't know what's going on. We now witness absolute high treason and a desperate but failing attempt to preserve the deception, which rapidly crumples as the light hits it. Silence about injection injuries and deaths proves complicity to commit democide. No voting will fix this broken machine until the saboteurs are exposed and deleted. Not one MP has called for a roll scrub. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's just a hidden sand from our MPs and our media, and they are complicit. They all told us we had to get jabbed. And when there's injuries about and deaths, nowhere to be seen. Crickets, silence. Hi, Rodney. Have noticed the narrative on the vaccine is it saved people from hospitalization. This is because you were considered not vaccinated until two weeks following the vaccine. Very, very clever trick of statistics. Would be great to hear something in depth around this. Thanks, Paul. Yes, indeed. I, I have seen that uh, argument and done by statistics. We should follow that up. Thank you. Hi, Rodney and your team. Love listening to as much RCR that I can. So good to know my family and I are not alone anymore. Keep up the good work, keeping us informed. Cheers, Paula. Thank you. Uh, Hi, Rodney. You need to spend a bit more time on YouTube watching stuff like this. Uh, This is Jim Jordan roasting Muppets on the Justice Select Committee. We can say what we like about the USA, but there's no other place on the planet where there is so much transparency in government as there is in the USA. New Zealand is an autocracy in comparison. I have to say, I do love the United States, and I even love their political system uh, for those reasons. And the American system, we know all about the wrongs because they do get exposed, and over time they can correct themselves. It's a strong republic. 
Uh, here's one from Sharon. Your interview interviewee reminds me of how angry I get when us anti-vaxxers are portrayed as uneducated and unscientific, when a lot of us spend hours researching. Thanks for the great show. Oh, I agree. Um, <laughs> some of the so-called professionals don't know much when you query them. Kathy uh, and Rodney, I think you will find original MedSelf panel was dismissed. Oh, I didn't know that. The new panel names were not disclosed. Oh, wow. They had 58 questions they wanted answered before they okayed it. They eventually agreed to trial status, only to be used in emergencies. Ollie, oh, thank you for that, Ollie. We need to look into that. Uh, Deagle Industrial Military Corporation population predictions for New Zealand 2025 were 3 million a 40% reduction. With all the facets of injury now surfacing, it would appear we may be on track. And there's a link to deagle.com, D-E-A-G-E-L.com. Never heard of them. Uh, there is enough evidence to warrant arrests now. The only way this could not happen is if New Zealand Government Corp, New Zealand Police Corp, and New Zealand Justice Corp are working together to prevent this. Well, I don't know who's going to be doing the arresting at the moment. Um, no one in power is going to own up. <clears throat> Rodney, burning question. Were, were prisoners forced to jab, i.e. lose prisoner privileges, or I have heard they could just say no and rights were respected more than ours, which was uh, nothing was ever mentioned. Thanks, Tracy. Well, I've got a report to make. I met a mandated out prison officer, and he told me <clears throat> that they told the prisoners, not him, but the authorities, that if they didn't get the jab, they'd be confined to their cell 24-7, which, of course, would be a huge breach of uh, prisoners' rights. And But I can imagine the prison authorities being so scared of COVID, given what they were being told, that they wouldn't want someone wandering around a prison without being jabbed. So it's quite possible. Imagine that. Get the jab, or you'll be in that cell 24-7. My goodness. I don't know the answer. It's a question that should be asked. Attention, Rodney. Love your soft voice. Love your emotion and feeling and surprise. Well, not surprise, and your eyes are open. But speak louder while retaining your softness. Rob. Uh, thank you, Rob. Uh, someone's come in, getting an intermittent signal. Uh, uh, Andrea, I was listening to your talk with Kathy and was reminded of an article I read two years ago in the JAMA. Gosh, um, that's a journal of the American Medical Association. You don't sort of typically read them over your coffee, where they investigated the safety of the vaccines for five to 17-year-olds and found that children can get myocarditis and pericarditis, but they always conclude that it is safe. It is sickening to read these scientific articles, especially without a doubt you'll find those words in the conclusion regardless of their findings. This article's conclusion, among 20 health outcomes that were monitored in near real time, a safety signal was identified for only myocarditis, myocarditis or pericarditis. Consistent with other published reports, these results provide additional evidence that COVID-19 vaccines are safe in children. My goodness. Ah, uh, my goodness. Uh, here's someone coming in. Attention, I'm a graphic designer. Oh, I'll pass that on to Kathy. And here's another one, another graphic designer. We've got two. Thank you so much for contacting us, emailing and texting. Please keep it up. Text 2057, email inbox at reality check 
dot radio. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's a great pleasure to have you along. Thank you so much for listening in. Man, we have some fun. Man, we can get angry. Man, have we got questions. We're only started. Keep listening. Thank you so much. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're with Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And what a relief it is to have this radio station and to be talking with you. Because it feels like for a long, long time we've been all alone and wondering if the world's gone mad. And we get guests on and I get your texts and I get your emails. Oh, don't forget to text 2057. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We get your texts and your emails and we realize it's not just us, right? The world has become an odd place. And in particular, the way our world is presented in our legacy media. And for growing up, I always took the news as the news, you know, as what was going on in the world and how to understand the world. And I was an avid consumer of the news. I'd listen to the radio on the hour national program. I'd read every newspaper that I could get my hands on. I would listen to the TV news. I was hooked. I was an addict. I was an avid listener. Now, don't get me started because it's sort of poisoning your mind somehow. It's like a toxic. And I've got an example to share with you because we can. And it makes us realize that it's not us. And it's this. Oh, surprise, surprise. It's stuff. And they had an article explaining how they got it wrong and the press council pulled them up. I'm not worried about what they had wrong. The whole thing is wrong. Even their admission they were wrong is wrong. But it just highlights the point that having been pulled up for being wrong, they show that they're mental. So here was the original story. And the title, the heading of the original story was this, quote, puberty blockers still considered safe and reversible. What? I have no medical training whatsoever. But the idea that a kid can take a chemical to stop puberty happening and that that's safe and reversible is absurd. Clearly, it's not reversible because you can't go back in time. So let's imagine that, oh, yeah, no, I just blocked puberty for five years or two years or six months. I can't go back. So that bit's not recoverable. And I don't think I can go through puberty when I'm 30 because I stopped taking the pills. I don't know what on earth they're thinking. And the very idea that you'd want to be delaying your puberty as to make up your mind as to whether you want to be a boy or a girl and stuff is just presenting that as a headline in the news. Blocking puberty. The idea that we would understand 
medical science would sufficiently understand the complexity of what is happening to the human body through puberty and that applying a chemical to it is a good idea to delay it because I'm not sure whether I want to be a boy or a girl. Surely to goodness there's someone in stuff who has a question about this. But nope, out she goes. Anyway, they got pinged to some complaint body and found to be wrong, but that's not the point. The point goes on like this. Stuff says in their correction that they dismissed two organisations who commented for the story as anti-trans because one organisation declared, quote, no child is born in the wrong body. And Stuff says they couldn't report them because they clearly want to erase the existence of trans people. That doesn't follow. That doesn't make sense. That is nutty. I know trans people exist. I've met them. I do not want to hurt them in any way, shape, or form. I do not want to erase their existence. However, I also believe that no child is born in the wrong body. It doesn't follow. I understand that you can be living your life and would rather be the opposite sex and want to present as the opposite sex. I understand that. Not easily, but I know it happens. And it doesn't trouble me in of itself because I think you should be able to live your life as you choose. And I certainly, certainly don't want to express any ill will to anyone that chooses to live that way. I do object to them going into the ladies' bathrooms and private areas. I do object to trans boys pretending they're girls competing in women's and girls' sports. I object to all of that. Of course I do. But I don't want to raise them. I don't want to deny they exist. I don't want to hurt them in any way. I also think it's true that no child is born in the wrong body. Because how can you possibly be born in the wrong body? Think about it. How can I be born in the wrong body? I can understand growing up and thinking, oh, I know I'm a boy, but I really feel like I'm a girl. I can understand that. But that's different to being born in the wrong body, surely. Because, like, you have an egg, it's fertilized by a sperm, it becomes a zygote, starts being a body. Uh-oh, it got put together wrong. No, it just is. It's like, like my mother was wrong. She put my body together wrong. She put me, me, somehow into the wrong body. No, I am my body. Like, it's me. The whole package. 
And yes, there's a whole lot of things that I'm uncomfortable about with my body. You know, people might say that I'm a little fat. People might say I'm a little bald. People might say I'm missing a tooth. Doesn't mean I'm in the wrong body. I mean, it's what I got. It's who I am. It's how nature, God, produced me. And I'm so blessed to be alive. I'm not going to complain I'm in the wrong body. And to say, whose body should I have been born into? Arnold Schwarzenegger's? How come I'm Danny DeVito, not Arnold Schwarzenegger? Clearly I'm in the wrong body. And to suggest that we're born and we're lucky to be born and that we're not born in the wrong body is not saying I want to erase anyone. Did they get this at stuff? And that whole big thing of journalists and editors and people reading it and people writing in, how can they write something that is so out there without question, without critique, so confident they're right, so self-righteous that they're right, so hectoring and lecturing of us, their readers, who they want to buy their newspaper and subscribe to them. And they say this. This, remember, is in their article commenting how they got pinged for being wrong. They said, well, they didn't include the commentary of organisations that were questioning that puberty blockers for children, obviously prepubescent children, were safe and re reversible, i.e. questioning that. We didn't include their commentary because to do so would be to quote stuff, represent false balance. And they drew the analogy with, would you believe it? Climate change. And you see, you can't present people that say that climate change isn't a problem or that there could be a problem with puberty blockers and that maybe they're not safe and maybe they're not reversible. You can't present these people's views because stuff sees its job as to present correct information and not to amplify misinformation. So, if you're suggesting that climate change isn't going to end the world in the next 10 years, you're not going to get reported by stuff. Because to do so would be to amplify misinformation. And they only deal with correct information. Likewise, they don't want to report you if you're going to suggest that no child is born in the wrong body or that puberty blockers, there might be a problem giving them to kids willy-nilly. Because if they did, that would amplify misinformation. So stuff take it upon themselves to decide what is correct, what is true, what is right, what is good. And they go on to talk 
about the accepted science. So these scribblers, well, I guess they're not scribblers now, they're tappers on their keyboard. They know what is accepted science and what is correct information. And when you go through it, it turns out that accepted science is what the government says. That is to say what government officials say. And on the case of puberty blockers, it's what the Ministry of Health say. That is the accepted science. Government. We are truly living in Orwellian times when our legacy media, who are dying on a stick and they can't die quick enough given their atrocious reporting, believe that what is true is what government tells us, that there is such a thing as accepted science. And we have government officials deciding what is accepted science. And that it's quite possible for a little baby to be born in the wrong body. And to suggest otherwise is, they don't use this word, but it's implied to commit genocide, to wipe out, erase trans people. Dear listener, the legacy media are toxic. They're dangerous. They are the source of misinformation. Thank goodness we have each other. Thank goodness we're connected. Thank goodness, actually, thank God that we have Reality Check Radio. Send me a text, 2015. Email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. I'd love to hear from you. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Thank you for tuning in. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, what a day we've had. Wally Richards, what can you say? Is that man a treasure or what? Such a lot of insight, so clearly and wonderfully explained how to deal with your tunnel house, your glass house, how to plant your potatoes, how to deal with pests. Um, oh, my goodness. He is a total treasure. And then 
academic and wonderful human being standing up, taking a stand. Prof. Elizabeth Rata started out to tell us what's going on within our universities, broadened out to what's going on in our society and with our leadership, and gave us an understanding of what's going on, what with postmodernism, something I'd never really thought about or heard about until Rally Check Radio came along, critical theory, and that phrase that she uses, that retribalization of New Zealand and identity ideology or communitarianism. And it's what we're being awashed with everywhere we turn, everywhere we look. And it's ripping our body politic up. And yet, we only need to look at our families, look down our street, spend time with people, and we realize it's that's not who we are as a people. And we need to reclaim our country. And if there was a job to do, Reality Check Radio is the vehicle because we can have those critical discussions, that critical debate. We can all get to talk and we can all get to listen and we all can get to learn and we can all come to understand not this enforced, humorless, inhuman narrative that's being constantly fed to us from our public institutions and from our legacy media. And we're going to win in this fight. Why? Because on our side of the fence, we're human. We're humane. We've got humor. We're people. We're real. There's nothing more boring, more desiccated, more dried up and human than that sort of official narrative, that legacy media, our politicians, our newspapers, our radio, our TV, even movies now. That just not human, they're not funny, it's always a political point. Hmm, no fun. Not like Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, not like Reality Check Radio, where we're human and we have fun and we love each other. Thank you for tuning in. Oh, send me a text, 2057. Send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.